Now we're in an interesting part of, of Matthew's gospel because you have here Matthew taking a moment to show us a little bit more about who Jesus is. Uh, and, and that's an important picture when the gospel writers seem to almost stop in what they're doing in this teaching about the teachings of Jesus. Here are the things that he said. And now take this stop moment and go, but I want you to see who he is. And, and in particular, you notice this in, in, in Matthew chapter 12, because a, a curious thing is, is put together there by Matthew that perhaps doesn't make an awful lot of sense. You'll notice in Matthew 12, verse 15, it says, Jesus aware of this, all right, aware of what? Back in just a few verses earlier, you might remember that we saw the problem of the Sabbath. Jesus has healed a man of a withered hand on the Sabbath day, and he's done extensive teaching about that, how they misunderstood the Sabbath law, misapplied the Sabbath law, the whole purpose and intent of that Sabbath law, and even though he used a very appropriate illustration, which is if we would pull our animal out of a pit on the Sabbath, then should we not do good to humans and heal a hand on the Sabbath? You'll notice that verse 14 says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how they can destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, it says, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And notice how this funnels into this statement in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by Isaiah. Now, usually when you have a this was to be fulfilled by the prophet, you kind of expect something a little bit more dramatic than Jesus withdrawing and some people following him. <laughs> okay, well, what are you doing here that, Matthew, you want to show us something about who Jesus is, that this is also even a fulfillment about the character of Jesus and ultimately what he's come to do. And, and as Evan mentioned this morning, as we look at the word of God, it is to be transforming. And I think it is so precious and powerful here that Matthew stops and says, I want you to be transformed by this picture of who Jesus is. It's a surprising picture. It's a startling picture about who he is and what he's come to do. And I hope with that picture, it'll set you on a course not only to be transformed by God, but we are in a week where we often are very grateful. And I'm grateful that we have a time when people stop just for half a second and think about Thanksgiving and what God should mean to us. And I hope this picture will resonate in your mind this week as we think about those things. You'll notice the picture that's given for us as we just mentioned in verse 15 that it says there, so he withdraws from them and many followed him and he was, and he healed them all. I'd love to do a whole sermon right there. Notice the people who are not rejecting, but the people who are listening and follow him. It doesn't say many followed him and he healed some of them and he healed them all. The people who are with him, Jesus is doing something about. The people that are with Jesus, his hand is with them and he is healing 
Every single one of them is a powerful start point in trying to give us a picture about who this Jesus is. But he orders them not to make him known. His time has not come yet. Jesus will dictate the terms of when he will be betrayed, when he will be arrested, when he will be tried, and when he will be crucified. And now is not the time. And so though the Pharisees are plotting to destroy him, he orders them, don't say anything about this. We're going to go to another town. It's not my time yet. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Verse 18, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Let's start with the first three quarters of verse 18 and notice the picture that is being given to us about who Jesus is. It says there, behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. That's a loaded statement about Jesus. For God to say this about the Christ, to say this about Jesus, this is my servant. This is the one whom I've chosen. This is my beloved. This is the one in whom I delight. Those are powerful statements about who Jesus is. But a little bit of historical context is helpful because you might remember that this is terminology that was used of Israel. This is terminology that was spoken of about Israel and here to have the terms and say, this is my servant. This is my beloved. This is my chosen. This is whom I delight. Well, God said that of Israel, but the problem is Israel failed in the mission. Israel failed to be the servant of God, failed to act like the beloved, failed to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, failed to be a light to the nations didn't accomplish the task so badly was that not done. You might remember as we've studied in our Sunday nights, God had to even leave his people. We just saw a staggering vision last Sunday night of the glory of God having to lift up out of the temple to leave Jerusalem and leave his people. What a staggering visual that the people have failed so badly. And yet God gives a picture and says, but that's not the end of the story. Here now is my servant. This is my beloved in whom I delight. This is my chosen one. And he is going to carry out my plans. He is going to succeed where Israel has failed. He is going to be the one to do exactly as I need to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to be the light to the nations, to be the savior that the world needs. Where Israel has stumbled, now we have the one who is able to accomplish the task. And I want you to think about the words when you read verse 18 when it says there, in whom my soul is well pleased. That really says a lot about Christ. That says a lot that he is not only going to succeed. But he's going to perfectly obey God's will, that God would be able to delight in him to say, that's my servant. That's my beloved. That's my chosen one. This is the one I can delight in because he's accomplishing the task. And ultimately, Isaiah is setting forward 
This is the savior you need. This is the servant you need. This is the one that we have been waiting for. Rather than Israel being the light, they now need a light. Rather than them being salvation to the ends of the earth, they need salvation too. The whole world stands under judgment. And here is the one to solve the problem. Now that setup is what is fascinating about how God is going to show what Jesus does. This quotation, the longest in Matthew's gospel, is setting up such a unique picture about the work of Jesus. Notice what it says, first of all, of all the things that he's going to do. The end of verse 18. And I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations or justice to the Gentiles. In fact, you'll notice it comes back around at the end of verse 20 and says the same thing until he brings justice to victory. This is, I think, fascinating. If I were to say, what's the first work that you think of about what Jesus does? I don't know the bringing of justice is always that first thought. And that's the first thing Isaiah brings. And it's the first thing that Matthew wants to zero in on. Here is the servant. Here's the chosen one. Here's the beloved. Here's the one that's going to accomplish the will and the plans of God. Well, what is he going to do? He is going to proclaim justice. To the nations. Notice he's not going to proclaim justice to the few. He's not going to proclaim it only to Israel. He's going to bring it to everybody until he brings justice to victory is what verse 20 says. And I think this is something for our consideration because I think innately deep within every human being. There is ultimately the desire for justice. We are wired for that. And to a varying degree or another, we are not happy when things are unfair. That's not fair. That's not right. Something needs to be done about that. That just wells up right within us. It is clearly the imprint of our God that has placed that on us, that everybody has that within them. Everybody has that sense. Everybody feels that's not right. And as an aside, I would put, point out, if there is no God, this doesn't make any sense. You must have a God with a central standard of judgment and justice and righteousness and equality that we can point to and say, that's the reason it's not fair. Because if there is no God, then who says what is Equality and fairness. Who says that that's not right? Who says that? And it's so interesting to read those arguments. Those arguments are where basically, well, it's your own sense of right. Well, guess what? Our senses of fairness and justice and rightness conflict all the time. Just go drive down Okeechobee for five minutes and you tell me about how fair and right and wait. You broke the rules. You didn't do what you're supposed to do. That's not what it said you were supposed to do. And immediately we have a sense of that. There's supposed to be justice and fairness and rightness. And here is this picture when Jesus comes. His work is to bring justice. 
That he is going to bring righteousness, that he will right wrongs, he will resolve injustice. And friends, we need that. And I don't know that in our world, there is a way to fully achieve any justice until Christ accomplishes it. I was thinking about this the other day with uh, the recent horrible um, reminders of what happened many years ago at the the Parkland School down south. And we just recently, a few weeks ago, had the sentencing. And you had just families so upset at that sentencing. And their feeling of a lack of justice. And everybody's outraged by that. Where is justice? Somebody's got to do something about this. But one of the things that I was thinking about is even if you got the sentence you wanted, would you still feel total satisfying justice? I don't think so. There is nothing you can do to bring back your child. There is nothing you can do on this earth to right wrongs like that. There is a sense that no matter what our world, our government, our culture tries to do in terms of right and wrong, there will always be a sense of there is something lacking and we need justice. There is something that needs to be done, that this is not right and it's not fair. And as much as our world right now is really caught up in the need of we need justice and we need fairness and we need equality. And yes, we do. But friends, please understand, you're not going to get a satisfying justice here until Christ comes and does it. You're just not. You can't get it. It is not achievable. Only Christ can accomplish this. That's why he's designated. He is the one that will carry out the plans of God. He is the one who's going to accomplish the task. He is going to make things right. He is going to deal with evil. He will deal with the things that are wrong. He is going to deal with all of those circumstances. And he will make every one of them right. And that's what that first picture is right here. First words. He will proclaim justice to everyone. To the nations. To the Gentiles. And notice he's not just going to proclaim it, verse 20, and he's going to bring it to victory. He's going to succeed. He is going to accomplish it. The first picture of Jesus that I want you to see in the work that he has is that Jesus is showing there is justice. There is such a thing. Imprinted on us. We want it. And he, there, it's going to be delivered. And he's going to be the one to do it. What a great start to this imagery of his work. We want justice. We want things to be put to right. And already you're getting a sense of you want to be on the side of Jesus when he's putting things to right. You want to be with him. He's going to proclaim justice, deliver the justice, execute that justice and bring that righteousness. And you want to be on the right side of that. I don't want to be on the other side of that. I want to be on his side of that. And that is being proclaimed here in the work that he does. He is going to be the one to bring the justice that each of us deep within our souls yearns, desires. And yet notice this shocking continuation in verse, 20, in verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice. In the streets. That is an awfully strange thing to say. 
about someone who is already being depicted as a deliverer of justice. A person who's going to set things right. Someone who's going to bring equality and make things fair and put things back to their right order. And the very next breath is a statement about how he's going to do his work in humility. He will not quarrel. He's not going to go around and pick a fight. He's not going to make a lot of racket. He's not going to cry aloud. He says, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's not a picture of saying he's not going to teach, but he's not going to make a commotion. He would not be combative. He would not be a self-proclaimer. He will not be a self-promoter. He's not going to go around shouting, I'm God and you all need to follow me or you're going to get it. I am the executor of justice. And so you're going to get it. Better follow me now. Now think about how this plays out. Notice that you have here the scene of the Pharisees want to destroy him. And does Jesus make a big noise about that? Does Jesus make a big argument, you know, big commotion? Just says he goes off. He just leaves. He just walks away. And I think this is such a precious picture about who Jesus ultimately is because his humility is staggering. If you slow down long enough and think about his humility, it's just staggering. You know, if you want to be around important people today, what do you have to do? You've got to like buy a VIP ticket for a bazillion dollars to get three seconds of a photo op with them and they pretend like they know you or sign a book. Oh yeah, my great friend that you know is completely garbage because they don't know you at all. And you get just this moment while they, you know, come down to your level for a second, you know, and you had to pay for it. Think about the humility of Jesus. He just goes into strangers' homes. He lets strangers walk up to him and touch him. Walk up to him and talk to him. He stops when throngs are following him and he's on his way to certain locations. He'll just stop and talk to people. Compare him to the leaders of today. He doesn't act like he's somebody important. He doesn't have a pile of secret service people keeping a big halo around him. Nobody get near Jesus. Here he comes. You know, everybody's standing from afar. No, everybody's just pushing around him so much. So you might remember when the woman touches him, who has the flow of blood, and Jesus said, who touched me? Remember what the disciples said? Everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? How are you going to figure out who touched you? Everybody is touching you. It's not like you had this great halo and one woman came bursting through the guards and, oh, he, she got through. Stop her. Everybody's touching Jesus. The humility of Jesus is staggering. You don't do that with world leaders or personalities or important people. But Jesus is pictured as one who will not cry aloud. You will not hear his voice. He's not going to make a big noise, nor is he going to exert his power to get his way. How do people get things done today? Today, the people who are in charge, who have wealth, who have money, who have power... How do they get things done today? They exert their power against the will of others. I'm in charge and I'm going to make you do what I want 
you to do. I'm going to tell you the way it is. And I want you to see something amazing about Jesus is he never exercises his power against the people. You know, after verse 14, and the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. Verse 15 could say, and Jesus aware of this mentally killed them. And you go, okay. Jesus aware of this pushed back and he got something out of them and he made them submit. And he showed him his glory and obliterated them on the spot so that they understood how wrong they were. No, Jesus aware of this left. He doesn't force his way. He doesn't twist your arm. He doesn't say, do you know who I am? He doesn't say, do you know the power I possess? He just walks away. He just leaves. He doesn't fight. He doesn't quarrel. He doesn't make a stink. Aware of this, he withdrew from there. And Isaiah says, this is an amazing fulfillment of Jesus because Jesus is going to accomplish the mission by speaking and acting gently. Not by asserting himself or fighting with others. You know, one of the great examples of that is one of my favorite little scenes that I always crack up at because I I know I would be James and John here. In in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, listen to this illustration of this truth. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near to him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Because he set his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Sounds like a reasonable response. They didn't do what you said, Jesus. You told them to prepare a place, make ready. And they didn't. So what do we do if you have authority and power and might? You make them. Lord, do you want us to have us cast fire down on them? Notice Jesus' answer is, you know, not today. The The next line is, Jesus turned and rebuked James and John. You don't understand who I am and the work I'm doing. I'm not going to be a loud voice on the streets. I'm not making a commotion. I'm not a self-promoter. I'm not going to strong arm people. I'm not going to make them do my will. If they don't want me, he just walks on to the next town. And if they don't receive, he just goes on to the next town. How different this Savior is from humans that we know who have power and authority today. Third picture, verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. What an amazing image as well. Is Not only do you have a picture of Jesus' humility, but you also have a picture that Jesus is going to do his work with gentleness. 
I want you to think about this picture. A bruised reed he will not break. Now, this is an image of us. This is, this is us. You, you feel, do you feel bruised sometimes? Bruised by life, bruised by sin. Also, us is the next one, a smoldering wick. So, you know how like a candle, it's just about to go out and it's just like smoking away because it's just about to go? That's us. We are the people who are bruised, who are barely hanging on, who are grasping. And here is the picture of Jesus. And the picture of Jesus is he doesn't come to hurting people and finish them off. He doesn't go, oh, you're bruised, snap. Let me finish that. Smoldering wick, barely going. Lick his fingers. Just put that out. You're done. Might as well just finish you. If you can't burn bright, what's your problem? If you can't be a strong reed, then forget it. Jesus doesn't come like that. He doesn't come to people and say, what's the matter with you? Get your act together. Bruce Reed. He's not coming to break that. Smoldering wick. He's not coming to extinguish people. He's coming to fan the flames. And I love the reminder that Jesus does not come to us in harshness. You know, Jesus doesn't come to you and go, what's the matter with you? Get your act together. Come on now. But with great gentleness, he comes. He doesn't come to you in exasperation, but with compassion. And I want to take it just a quick aside right here to say, If we're supposed to be disciples of Jesus who follow in his steps and model his example. Then we're supposed to be people like verse 19 who do not quarrel, who do not make a noise, who are not self-proclaimers, who do not draw attention to themselves and make a big stink, but act in humility. And we're to be a people of gentleness who don't go around breaking bruised reeds and snuffing out smoldering wicks. That's not our purpose. We are supposed to be a people of compassion and gentleness and humility to one another. We need to display that. If Jesus did that, then most certainly we need to be exuding that and practicing that here as the people of God, with your families, in the world, on the job. Don't be the people that are burying others, but rather be the people who are helping others and coming to them in gentleness and coming to them in humility. We are to be the people who give a message of healing and restoration. Look at the final picture in verse 21. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The only hope that you can ever find in this world is ultimately in Jesus. You're not going to find your hope in the world. You're not going to find your hope in worldly pursuits or sinful desires or in idols. You're not going to find your hope in other people. The only hope that exists is a hope in God. That is the only satisfying hope that exists. 
And I was thinking about this with the idea of justice and how we can be hurt in our lives as a bruised reed and smoldering wick. I was thinking about uh, Job and what he was going through in those first couple of chapters and all that he lost and all that he endured. And, and the last thing that he needed were three friends to come to him and just tear him apart, which is what they ultimately do. Chapter after chapter, just wailing on him. They're not helping the bruised reed. They're actually hurting the bruised reed all the more. They're trying to break the reed. And I thought about that idea. It's like, you know, in our times of, of hurt and in the times of despair, in the times of pain, in the times of distress, so often we're looking for who's going to be the one to give us the help and the hope that we need. And even as the people of God, we sometimes want to be those people. But at the end of the day, we can't fulfill that. I, I can listen to you. I can give you a hug. I can pray for you. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there's nothing I can do for you. And at the end of the day, there's nothing you can do for me. That's sometimes why we will joke and say the best thing the three friends did was for three days, for the full week, those three friends just sat quietly and listened. Because <laughs> there's not much more you can do. And to think that you can find satisfying hope in other people and other places and other things, you just can't. Nobody can be that resource. Nobody can fulfill that void. Only God can. And we spend so much of our lives trying to fill that void. What's going to give me that satisfying hope? What's going to be that thing that I need? What's going to be the one to ultimately give us what I'm looking for? And I want us to see that this picture that Matthew is putting forward is trying to show healings only in Jesus. Restorations only in Jesus. Justice is only in Jesus. Hope is only in Jesus. True joy and true satisfaction is ultimately only found in Jesus. And so much of what we're grasping for is wind. Because nothing can accomplish what our soul's desire is really looking for. So Matthew wants us to have a very clear picture of, of Jesus. I'm going to give it in one summary, but I'll fill it out, which is this. Our hope for justice and compassion and gentleness and help and healing. It's only found in the one who is the compassionate, gentle, humble giver of justice. It's only there. It is only there. He is the ultimate restorer. And think about Jesus in this way. He doesn't cast off the outcasts. We can wreck our lives pretty bad with sin. We can make things a pretty big mess. So that we just look like a bunch of bruised reeds. But he doesn't cast us away. He's come to restore the broken. His work for you is not to break you. But his work is to heal you. But I want you to take the context of this. He's not going to make you listen. He doesn't make you. He will not force you to enjoy the 
healing and hope and comfort and compassion and grace and mercy that he offers. He's just not going to make you. Like verse 14 and 15. They say no. Jesus goes, okay. I won't be a self-promoter. I won't arm wrestle with you. I'm not going to force you into something. But I'm here for you. And I want you to see that he is the place for hope in your life. But he's not going to make you. The choice is ultimately yours. And what a great God that we serve who allows us to see him clearly like that. And in a time when we're supposed to be turning our eyes upward and our hearts toward God, I hope you will think about who this Jesus is and truly be grateful that you have a Savior who's not about himself and doesn't go around breaking bruised people, but instead is the kind of person who says, I will proclaim justice and every single person can have hope in my name. I would like for you to think about your life this this morning and think about what do you need? What are you lacking? And really think about how Jesus is ultimately the answer for that. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we have so many voids in our lives that we, we desire justice and we feel empty with the things that can be so unfair, things that are done wrong against us and against others, and, and we, we want something to happen. We can feel the futility of this world when there is such a lack of justice. And Lord, we can feel the emptiness and weight as we have thrown our lives into sin and selfish pursuits and come up empty and feel the weight of guilt and the burden of sin and the devastating consequences of our decisions. And Lord, I pray that this picture of you would just help us see who you really are. And I would pray it would be one that would transform us into people who are grateful, who are devoted, and begin to reflect the same kind of humility and gentleness that you showed toward us. Lord, help us to be a people who are not about ourselves, who do not exercise our rights or power, who do not break bruised people, but help us to be a people of gentleness and compassion. And help us to be the people so that all the world can see that hope is only in you. And all that we ultimately need is only in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now sing invitation song and we invite you to come to the ultimate restorer. What, what a curious pause in Matthew's story. I looked at that and I thought, look at this, this stop point. We're just going to stop and I want you to see Jesus for a minute and I want you to see him clearly. And I hope that you'll choose to receive the grace of God today, to see him as a compassionate one who wants you to come to him to find hope and healing, restoration and comfort 
If you would give him your life today to turn away from sin, confess him to be your Lord and Savior, the Son of God who came to this world and died for your sins, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, we stand ready to help you do that. You can let me know afterward. Tell somebody afterward you're looking for help. We can pray for you. Just let us know what we can do. Or you can come forward now while we stand and while we sing.